welcome to the Vertiguys show. We are checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. I am Sean, and Eric has left the key to hell in the capable hands of the Angel Duma, but since the Angel Duma is silent, my guest today is Andy. Hi! Good to be back. How are you doing today? <laughs> ah, pretty darn good. Just read a whole compilation, book five of Preacher today, in one, in one sitting. Oh, you could have told people that you were better prepared than that. You didn't have to. Oh, no. I'm, I am as equally prepared as I was last time. I'll say that much. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say, I, I crammed the night before. Or hours before. So, yeah. So, uh, Andy is a great actor and a great GM and my friend. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing it. Thank you for having me. So, our story today is Preacher number 49 and 50. We are finally putting a cap on a major story arc and getting ourselves into position to move towards the final story arcs of the series. How, how many more, more books are after this that it wraps up? This is the final graphic novel. No, I'm sorry. The next one is the final graphic novel. I was saying... It oh cuts off God. in the middle. I was saying, we didn't get any real solution. This is the fifth one. We have nothing. I, what do you mean? Oh, yes. This ended in 1996 with no resolution whatsoever. <laughs> why? That's why it's a cult series. Oh, God. No. I'd be so upset. No, he, at the end he drives to London and he puts on an ape mask. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's all right. That's a really obscure joke. I don't think I got it, unfortunately. Previously on Preacher... Who? <sighs> <laughs> the War in the Sun arc saw a three-way battle between Preacher Jesse Custer with his friends Tulip and Cassidy against the forces of the Grail, the evil church conspiracy that wants to rule the world, led by the evil hair star, mm-hmm. and the Saint of Killers, Heaven's Assassin. That was a fucking episode. That fight was amazing. I love that thing. And that fight ended with Star calling in a nuclear strike on the Saint of Killers, yeah. which knocked out one tooth. It did knock out a tooth. It knocked out one tooth. Fuck, dude. I didn't even notice that. Jesse oh. and his friends barely escaping via a plane, which Jesse fell out of cool. and was found mysteriously alive in the desert. And also forced Cassie to drop him out of. Cassidy had him by the hand, and he used the word of God to force him to let go and drop him. Else burn alive. That's right. Jesse spent quite a bit of time recuperating in the town of Salvation, Texas, where he was the sheriff, and he defeated the evil meat magnate, Odin Quincannon. Who? <sighs> Who? I mean, people have had issues so far, but I'm not sure if it's been that many. This might be the issue, like the most issue anyone's had of an issue. I'm not sure if you're using the word issue too much. This guy's got a couple problems, a couple of skeletons in the closet. He appeared in nine issues, but I think you're referring to some more fundamental issues. Yes, <laughs> deep character flaws, maybe. <laughs> so, Preacher number 49, First Contact, written by Garth Ennis, art by Steve Dillon, and colors by Pamela Rambo. The cover is by Glenn Fabry, and it's first person as Jesse is falling from the plane, with a flaming Cassidy reaching out to save him. This is a really cool image, but it's a little bit spoiled by Jesse's pained, teeth-gritted face kind of superimposed over the middle of the image. Yeah, yeah, very much a cat photo kind of uh, coming out of, the, out of the fading of nothing in the background. I've seen those like, memes online of like, someone holding a really terrible picture of them and their cat, and like the cat's head is like, coming out of the darkness kind of thing. That kind of thing happens. Oh, okay, here. okay, yeah. It's very obscure. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, really striking image. First person falling from the plane. And I'm not sure what this face is supposed to convey. I thought it was maybe him finally remembering those events, but he's not wearing his eye patch. Yeah. I'm guessing it's the pain that he felt in letting go, or, or I'm not sure at that point. I don't think he was too injured at this point in the comic. I'm not sure. But he looks very pained in this rendering of him, rather. Inside the comic, we find Jesse standing on a dock in a thunderstorm, which is where we saw him way back in Preacher number 41 at the beginning of the arc, before he flashed back to the events in Salvation. Oh yeah, you're right, yep. So the flashback is finally over. He stands on the dock shouting at the storm, Rage blow you cataracts and hurricanoes! <laughs> King Lear, always wanted to say it. He asides to his dog Skeeter. Skeeter. Did they ever give it a reason for the dog's name? Oh, I assume because he's, like, really energetic. He's always buzzing around him. Okay. Do we get a explanation or, like, a scene where he names the dog, even? He or... does. Uh, right after he's found in the desert by Johnny Lee Wombat, mm-hmm. that's when he meets the dog in town. Gotcha, gotcha. I do remember that, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, Jesse uh, warns Skeeter to hide in the truck, because he recaps why he is about to take a whole bunch of peyote. <laughs> and he has been carrying this around since before the War in the Sun. Yeah. He was about to take it in Monument Valley, 
And basically, he needs to get back the memory of how he survived falling from the plane. And he believes that basically if he gets drugged out of his mind, Genesis can take over. Genesis knows how to find God. Exactly. And uh, as far as bad plans go, you know, it's not the worst plan so far. But he's doing it on the end of a dock on the ocean. <laughs> so you gotta, you gotta throw that in there. Well, you know, he tried getting stoned in the desert. That didn't really work out. There's nowhere to drown out there. <laughs> no chance of possible just dying due to natural causes. He makes a comparison to another plan here that he disparages. Just hoping I ain't liking that goddamn Doors movie. Boy, did it suck. <laughs> what, what is he referencing there, Doors movie? I don't know that one. There's a biopic of The Doors. I think it's called The Doors. Okay. I want to say Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison, but I could be wrong about that. All right, all right. I only know Val Kilmer as Batman, and that's about it. And I think another... he played Elvis in another movie, so maybe I'm thinking of that. So he finally pops the peyote. Mm-hmm. And he suddenly finds blood running down his shirt. Yeah, that was disconcerting for me. I'm like, what, what, did I miss something? What's happening? Oh, yeah, the peyote. Yeah, but that's, that's a cool way of doing it. The first thing that we see that indicates that he's having his experience is rather subtle. And it's something that he doesn't even notice, but we, the reader, notice. Right, he starts to notice this blood pouring down his shirt. And he finds something stuck in his neck. <laughs> Lo and behold. So he has pulled this, this creature out of his neck, and it is Cassidy with a tail. <laughs> it's just a, the long-fanged Cassidy head on what is basically like a long snake-ish or snail, maybe. And he says, how are you? <laughs> Cassidy explains that he's actually a leech, which is the way Jesse's brain sees him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he bites Jesse's finger. Watch you don't pass out from loss of blood there. <laughs> and this is, of course, Jesse kind of reconciling with the fact that he saw Cassidy and Tulip. Yeah, so that's the other the big internet. development at the end of War in the Sun. Yep. Cassidy had taken advantage of Tulip's damaged emotional state, as well as the fact that she was doing a lot of sleeping pills and booze to get in her pants. Which and is... has, he's basically been trying to do that for a lot of issues at this point. Yeah. They never go into, at least from what I saw, specific details as to what happened, but you can kind of draw conclusions on your own. And it obviously affected Tulip in some serious ways as, later on, as we'll read. Yeah. And Jesse did catch up with them in Dallas and see them kissing. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know the full story, so he feels betrayed by both of them. Which, I, you know, I'll mention again that I think taking off after he saw them in Dallas without even attempting to get the full story, was a little bit of a dick move on Jesse's part. Well, at the same time, I can totally understand it. Like, he sees Tulip and he sees Cassidy, and it's been, what, how many months since he's died? Or he doesn't, does he even know at that point? Yeah, something like a month since he apparently died. And if they've moved on, and they're happy, and they're together, then who am I to come in and ruin that kind of thing? At the same time, he and Tulip, I mean, it's been like a month. It's, been like a, it's not been years. It's been a month. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm very conflicted about the decision. It's stupid, but he did it. Yeah, it's in character <laughs> for him. And he talks in the Salvation Arc about how just seeing Tulip with another guy sort of cut the legs out from under him so he didn't have the determination to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. As Cassidy has warned him not to pass out, he is indeed passed out unconscious on the dock. <laughs> yep. Luckily, he has managed not to land in the water yet. Yet. He is resuscitated by mouth-to-mouth -mouth from Grandma. Huh. And his appropriate reaction is the like yeah. scream in response. Grandma is his nonagenarian evil grandma who basically destroyed his life and his parents' lives and, and forced him to become a preacher. He finds himself back in Angelville with Jody, TC, and Billy Bob. Who now has a eye patch, much like him, which means he's entirely blind. An eye patch over his only eye. <laughs> yep. Billy Bob complains that they did this to him with a hot poker, and that means Lori will never marry him now. Which, have we met Lori in the series already? She was. She was in Salvation, right? Yeah, that's right. She had gotten away from Angelville and made a better life I, for herself. I, I had forgotten until this moment that they were promised to each other or that they expect, were expected to marry each other, I guess. Billy Bob was Jesse's childhood friend who was uh, murdered by TC, if I'm not mistaken. And things get worse, as they always seem to. <laughs> Someone else you might want to say howdy to, boy. You call Jody, honey? And we see Jody... And a, I guess you can only say kind of sluttified version of Tulip, kind of just in more or less kind of very trashy kind of makeup. And I have written Evil Tulip. Evil Tulip, I'm not sure if I would go that far, but at least she's got like fishnets on, very revealing clothing, very heavy eye makeup, and 
hoop earrings and tussled hair, so on and so forth, with her arm around Jody, of all people. So Jesse's imagination is being a bit judgmental here. It's also torturing him, I think, <laughs> in a very, very pointed way. Jody has the line here. Your gal here, she's with me now. Reckon she prefers the taste of evil dick. Which is really just a... <laughs> it's really a preference when it comes to it. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Which, I gotta call this out because this is a line from the Good Old Boys special. He's used this line before. Really? Yeah, he, he oh, used the same yeah, line on the, right. on the... What do you call him? Moron, the action movie hero at the end of Good oh, Old Boys. God. Which um, makes me wonder, like, did he tell Jesse that story? Because that's completely inappropriate for a child. Well, that also is very much fitting the brand of Jody, though. <laughs> or maybe Garth Ennis just really liked the line. Yeah, that's probably it. That could be it. Jesse denies that Tulip could be with Jody, but Tulip argues that this is how he sees her. But isn't that how you see me now, Jesse? Down amongst the shit? A filthy little slut, see I told you, who'd give herself to anyone? You hate me for what I've done. The very thought of me disgusts you. Jesse swears that he doesn't think that, and if any part of him does, fuck that guy. Yep. He goes to punch Jody, but he gets knocked on his ass. And he gets punched out with a great, a great line from Jody, in my opinion. Get out about your damn vision, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone holds darkness in their heart, Jesse Custer, Grandma says. Don't ever forget that we are the darkness in yours. And then the punch-out happens, to which he, instead of falling backwards on the grass, we next page see him, smash cut, falling from the same plane that he fell from earlier. That was a cool effect. I like that as well. It's a good transition. There's a moment of darkness, and then he finds himself standing on his feet in the middle of the desert, surprised to not be dead. It is beginning of this part where we get a lot of smash cuts or jump cuts between what is happening in his vision and what is happening in real life. That's where kind of this starts happening, more or less, is we see part of the scene happening in the vision, then it cuts to, okay, this is what's happening in real life, back and forth for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. His struggle to find the truth uh, parallels a struggle for survival that will go on. Agreed. <laughs> for the great hereafter, this looks a hell of a lot like Utah. When who should appear behind Jesse but God? A golden, glowing, smiling, bearded man. It is in every way what you would expect the atypical version of God to look like in every sense. I think you wanted archetypal. Archetypal, thank you. It is Adonis features. It is pure white, glowing, radiant yellow, benevolent smile, wisdom in the eyes, everything you'd expect. God says to rejoice as Jesse has been saved, but Jesse's not having any of that. Oh, God. It's <laughs> the worst. Oh, this God. God adds that he loves Jesse still, and even though he didn't turn back when he was warned twice, God forgives Jesse. <laughs> and I believe the, the level of arrogance in, in his... I mean, he's God, right? But also just the detestable and detectable amount of arrogance with which everything is said. He's being very condescending. Extremely. Here. Extremely. I mean, it's to a point of nausea almost, which I think is the author's intent. Yeah, yeah. Well, he definitely thinks of himself as being well above Jesse's pay grade. And so the fact that he's here at all is an accomplishment to him. This is a really interesting scene, and yeah. I, I'd love to see how this plays out. Same. God tells Jesse that his journey is over. He's mm -hmm. found God. He's accomplished what he set out to do, and mm -hmm. now he can go and live in peace. The fuck I will, mister, <laughs> he responds. Yeah, Jesse's got some questions for God. Not just why the world is so full of misery, but to start with, why is God running from him? And why has he abandoned his, cre his creation? And why shouldn't Jesse force him back to the throne? It Go is ahead. during this time we also see cuts of Jesse in real life falling off the pier into the water in the ocean and drowning effectively. Yeah. The creation cannot make demands of its creator. Then the creator shouldn't piss on his creation. God tells Jesse that he's over the line. Jesse wonders why he's not being smited then. Oh, willful man, how often must you hear it said, because I am a loving God. Jesse wonders, though, how a loving God could use Tulip so cruelly back in Angelville when he allowed Jody to shoot her in the head so that he could resurrect her as a gift to Jesse. And took away Jesse's powers. Not allowing for all that horrible stuff to happen. Right, allowing him to be vulnerable to his evil family. And he wonders why God has been afraid to face him directly. And then he begins to wonder whether God actually gave back his power at the end of Angelville, or whether it just came back on its own. At which point in time is the cue for... 
It's time you... Jesse, eyes blazing red, tries to use the word of God on God. (laughs) And he gets grabbed by the throat for his presumption. Enough! God is now glowing red with scary red eyes. Lightning bolts in the background, billowing black purple clouds uh, along with them. He puts on a show, for sure. Oh, absolutely. God lifts Jesse by the throat and demands he beg for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And Jesse spits on God's nose. (laughs) It is, yeah. There's a quote coming up that I just need to say because it's so good. I'm I'm so ready for it. This is like a huge moment. This is not just, you know, a dirty fighting move. This is Jesse passing judgment on the Almighty. Yeah, and it's... The level of, like, hypocrisy and the double speech in this scene, I want to get into so badly at some point in time. I'm not sure if we're doing it right now, but I want to no, so go, badly. No, go into it. Like, the fact that God has done every type of tactic at this point to not talk to Jesse. It has been... Right, so like, he, he put both uh, Tulip and Cassidy in, in perilous positions, mm-hmm. torturous positions, mm-hmm. and then essentially... I wouldn't go as far as rescued in Cassidy's case, but allowed them to be rescued so that they could deliver the message to Jesse to back off. And also, that is, in a a way of its own, of a sense of bribery. It's like, I am offering this to you, these people to you that you care about, in exchange for you not coming after me. And then on top of that, God shows up and is like, well, you found me, congratulations, and you know what, I'm going to forgive you because I'm such a good guy. And you don't, it's all over. You don't have to worry about it. Like, he's doing anything he can to cut off Jesse at the pass and not have to deal with what's coming, I think. Yeah, there's something almost biblical about the, about the symmetry there, about him having three encounters with Jesse, three warnings to mm-hmm. go back. Like St. Peter. <laughs> Basically, yep. But Jesse is not to be dissuaged. Yeah, and, and Jesse sort of figures out, why does God negotiate from anything but a position of strength mm-hmm. unless he isn't in one? Which is kind of what God probably... That's my guess, is that like God isn't as powerful as we've been led to believe, perhaps? Or or not as powerful as Genesis. That's also kind of scary. The half-angelic, half-demonic spirit that is possessing Jesse that gives him his powers. So, at this point, Jesse has heard God's excuses. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, has he offered any excuses, though? He says that he's a loving God, and he really sort of wants the best for Jesse, despite everything that he's either put him through or allowed him to be put through by an action. But he pointedly, I think he pointedly has not answered a single question of Jesse's, really. It's true. It's true. He's very contemptuous of what Jesse is actually after. He's not interested in justifying himself to part of his creation. Yeah, and he, he, he is completely understandably very dismissive of any argument or any demands that Jesse would make. Right, and Jesse has had enough of that. He's had enough of uh, everything he's seen wrong with the world that God has allowed to happen mm-hmm. by abandoning the throne of heaven. Mm-hmm. And God, after having his nose spit on... Doesn't take it well. I would say so. It takes about as well as any deity I think would. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say, he places his lips to Jesse's left eye socket and pulls and sucks his eye into his mouth and pulls and bites the eye off at the stalk throwing Jesse to the ground of the desert, screaming, and spitting out the eye in a very gruesome little uh, act of punishment, I think. We'll probably get more into this in show notes. There is absolutely a biblical moment this is sort of referring to. Jacob's struggle with God in the desert. (laughs) I think that this next line of God's, this bottom half of this page is like my favorite thing I've read today, basically. Okay. Which is, to set the background, it is, the background is the, the, I aforementioned billowing purple-black clouds with a raging, fist-clenched god yelling over a Jesse who is crawling away from him, blood streaming out of one socket. God is yelling to him, Believe in the loving God. Repent your sin before the loving God. Tremble at the might of the loving God. Accept me as your savior or be damned. And just the complete... The complete opposites at play here. It's such, for me, it's such hypocrisy, right? It's Ennis's takedown of sort of the whole divine concept here that God is boasting of his love while literally threatening and brutalizing Jesse. And it's, I think it's, it's very much the author's opinion that a loving God cannot exist at the same time as a God who would damn someone to hell. It's a contradiction Mm. in and of itself, basically. And I'm sort of glad to read this with somebody who 
hasn't had a ton of exposure to this art hey. because you're just reminding me that the art here is incredible. Steve Dillon's doing oh. an amazing job yeah. creating this brawl in the desert with God, this really epic moment, and delivering the character of God in a way that works. None of it is, um, what would I say? It doesn't uh, take me out of it or doesn't, like, oh, that's not... From what we know of the universe that this takes place in, I completely believe this is how this God or this version of God would function and would speak. It, it completely fits the tone for me. So yeah, it, it's very much in-universe and fits with the way we've seen everything so far. This is also like one of the rare cases where Jesse's incredible Jody-taught fighting skills are not availing him. Oh, not He at is all. actually overwhelmed in a physical match here <laughs> with the creator of the universe. I mean, to be fair, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, you know, it happens. So God continues ranting, Answer, or be you. And the, the panel, the cut between that answer or be and you goes from that, that pinkish red with a god with a clenched fist, his mouth open, his eyes just awash in anger and rage as though he's about to strike Jesse down, cuts right after the answer or be goes to you and it is right back to that beloved, wide-eyed, yellow, peaceful god out of nowhere and then... Gone. Jesse's yeah. laying alone in the desert. He he reverts to the sort of kindly father figure in mid-sentence and then just disappears. And we have an effective wide shot here of Jesse alone in the desert. And my thought immediately was like, what the, what did he see that makes him charge off out of nowhere, right? Yeah, at first I thought that he was having a moment of regret here yeah. a moment of mercy but i don't like that, that didn't fit really for me like i thought the exact same thing but this, this guy this god seems so outside of self-reflection in my opinion like he mm. can't possibly judge himself he's beyond judgment even of himself that's an interesting way of putting it yeah and we are so, quickly to find yeah. out that that's not what it was <laughs> yes very true and now we are seeing jesse uh the bottom three panels of him upside down in the darkness of the ocean bubbles escaping his lips and a solid black panel with the words, Want it quick? And cut back to him in the desert. May as well, preacher. You're dying anyhow. And it is the saint of killers. Standing the, over him. The gun. immortal cowboy, heaven's assassin. Oh, so cool. Having played Red Dead and playing a D&D character who's a gunslinger right now, <laughs> I, I now love the saint of killers. Like, it's now my favorite character. I'm sorry. It's just so much fun. We have the Saint of Killers standing over Jesse, gun drawn, pointed at him. Yeah, so this is, this is what God saw. The Almighty ran when he saw the Saint of Killers, who is effectively the angel of death, whose weapons can kill anything. Anything. We've even learned at this point, I think in the time, we've learned that it can kill the devil himself, right? Right, he killed the devil. Which means that, in all seriousness, that God probably had to run for his immortal life. <laughs> yeah, Jesse is surprised to hear that he's dying but the saint says you can't survive the touch of god or if you did you'd go crazy and lose your memories so that explains something oh ron what way of doing it but well, we got it jesse turns down the mercy killing i ain't dying i ain't going crazy and i by god will remember one way or the other i don't need no quick way out from you because you and me are gonna take that bastard down to which the saint replies i ain't helping you with nothing preacher so long you just did, big man. You just did. Because Jesse has learned what God is afraid of. Jesse has learned God's weakness. And he, uh, he learns that God is weaker than he thought as well. He stopped him from using the word, so he knows he's susceptible to the word. Mm. And he also is susceptible to be, being killed by the saint of killers. Jesse falls into darkness, and then we find ourselves back in the bar where Jody and TC caught up with jesse's parents yeah in a single page slip it's really jaunting and like it really kind of like took me off guard like oh we're, we're back here out of nowhere is this part of the peyote are we just cutting back memory wise it was it was jarring to say the least have you ever read this is a tangent have you ever read for the man who has everything no i've not never heard of it what is uh, it's a superman story by alan moore mm -hmm. the mongol tries to defeat superman by sticking him with a parasitic plant that makes him envision his perfect world and his, his own attempts to escape from this perfect world manifest as his utopian life becoming increasingly corrupt and awful. What the fuck? And Batman and Wonder Woman have showed up to rescue him. So at one point, Batman is subjected to the parasitic plant, and we see Batman's ideal life. And... Is it just the same thing? <laughs> no, 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 no. This is, this is creepy. Okay. 
I think this is only in the, the Justice League animated version of it, but here's what happens. He goes back to Crime Alley, right? He sees his parents, and the, and the guy pulls the gun, and his dad knocks the gun away and starts beating the crap out of the guy, and it never stops. He never moves on and just has a life. It's just his dad beating up that criminal Holy forever. Holy shit! That's <laughs> insane! It's like... I wouldn't even... Yeah, there's so many things you could do with that, but like just to stay on that moment forever in eternity is like, damn, wow. That's fun. Yeah, that guy's messed up. Yeah, yeah, Batman's a little traumatized. Go figure. That, that was what this reminded me of. So we're back in the bar. Uh, here, Jody and TC have caught up with John Custer and Christina Langell, Jesse's mm. parents, and little Jesse. And the way this fight proceeded the first time, John got the better of Jody, but then TC had him from behind with the shotgun, and mm-hmm. he had to surrender. In this version, Christina cold cocks TC with a chair. Which is what should have happened. I'm retconning it right now. No, I'm kidding. This doesn't happen. Yeah, well, you might almost wonder, reading this, if this if there's, like, actual time fuckery going on, and he has actually gone back and, and changed these events. Mm-hmm. But that would massively shift the direction of the story. Yeah, to this point, we're still right on this page. It's, it is very jarring, because we're not sure what we're experiencing right now, where we are. So this is just kind of... I guess I see this as Jesse kind of trying to reassert himself by, by seeing a traumatic episode from his past and, and changing it in his mind, seeing how he wishes it could have gone. Mm-hmm. Better take the boy outside, Christina. I don't want him seeing this. John says he brandishes a broken bit of chair. <laughs> Christina takes little Jesse outside, and we can hear <laughs> just a bam, splash, splitch, bam, splash, splitch. Just apparently of, of uh, Jesse's dad just going to town, beating the shit, probably killing him with a piece of wood. Now, Christina and Jesse are outside, but then Grandma shows up. <sighs> that boy is mine. She says, and as she demands that Jesse be a preacher forever, she transforms into a giant rattlesnake. Ugh. No escape. Oh no, not from Grandma. You're going to be a preacher. You're going to be a preacher. You're going to be a preacher, Jesse Custer. To which a, <laughs> a two-ton boot comes down on her. She is stomped flat by the even more giant foot of the Duke. <laughs> And who, on the next page, we see is standing taller than mountains, head in the clouds, quite literally. Yeah, literally, he is standing in Monument Valley, which is, in addition to, you know, the scene where this happened to Jesse, this is the site of many a John Wayne movie. Yep. And he is just standing like a monument in and of itself, and they are no higher than his his shoes. Well, goddamn, much obliged, sir. <laughs> I really appreciate John Custer's casual danger dialogue here. <laughs> it's just like... Well, goddamn, much obliged, sir. Hell, it was a pleasure. Got a message for the little pilgrim there. Friend of his is kind of scared for him and wanted me to pass it along. You ready, son? Whee! Woof, woof. (laughs) Woof, woof, woof. Woof, woof. And Jesse looks to the side from his parents, and suddenly we are, in a page turn, snap, just like that, back to reality. Yeah, Jesse has washed up on the beach or been pulled to the beach by Skeeter. Mm-hmm. He is no longer drowning. And he has his memory back. Yeah, he has come through his uh, peyote experience. He has regained his memory and learned what he needs to do. Mm-hmm. He's got the determination to go on. He says he knows what he needs to know. He saw it in God's eyes. Why he created the world. Why he gave Jesse so many chances. And what he's afraid of. I'm coming for you, you son of a bitch. And hell's riding with me. Funny enough, he does not say... We, we, we as the audience can assume what God is afraid of, which is the saint of killers. Right. But he does not say what he saw in God's eyes that answered all of his questions, is the thing. And maybe, maybe it's that God isn't as powerful as we've been led to believe. Maybe that's the real answer to that question. Yeah, so there is going to be one more confrontation, obviously. And, and that we are going to learn a little bit more about what God is after, if I'm not mistaken. That's good. What, what he what his motivations are. Yeah, because right now we have little to nothing as far as uh, motivations for God. Okay, would you have liked to see more in the way of answers in terms of God's motivation and why he keeps giving Jesse so many chances in this confrontation? In this confrontation, I don't think so. I don't. I mean, this is really our first confrontation with God in a way. Even though we've, he's been present with both Cassidy and Tulip, we never truly see him in his full effect. We never see our facial frontal shot of God before. So I think as a reader, this is very much my first time really seeing him in his full. Mm -hmm. And though 
correct me if I'm wrong, I know that the conversation he has with Tulip, they kind of cut away from at times. I think so. I don't. I, I think, think we have seen his face once or twice, but he is deliberately obscured for most of his interactions with Tulip and Cassidy. I think with Cassidy, we see the scene from his POV. Yeah. Although now that we've seen him, we know that, you know, when Tulip and Cassidy saw him, they must have known exactly what they were looking at. Uh, honestly. The the thing that I was thinking was, like, this is probably the longest conversation that anyone has had so far on page with God. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is the, the most character development he's gotten so far. But it does leave a lot to be wanting for the reader. But I think that's just more bait on the hook, really. So this is his first chance to establish himself as a presence in the comic, as a villain. Uh, and, and that sets up another confrontation where we can fully understand him. And, and it, I think, while it is often a problem sometimes in movies where you do not know the villain's motivations and not understanding the villain is a problem, I think the fact that you don't understand God in this context really kind of makes sense, that you don't understand what God is all about, because that's kind of what God... That, it makes total sense, honestly. He's supposed to be ineffable. Yeah, he's supposed to be just unknowable, really. And it fits his character, it really does. So I wouldn't want to see anything more than what was given, honestly. I know, or I hope, rather, I haven't read the last book. Okay. Now I really want to. So I'm going to borrow that from you soon. But I really want to see that final confrontation. Because they have made the promise so many times already. And now, fourth time's the charm, hopefully. Fingers crossed that the next confrontation will be the final one. We can get some real answers. And I'm okay with not having that much right now. I really am. Okay. So that brings us to Preacher number 50. The Land of Bad Things. Same credits. On the cover, we see Jesse's troubled face overlaid by or perhaps reflected in the names on marble at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. And in fact, I believe this is a deliberate effect of the wall, that when you look at it, your own face is overlaid with the names and, of those who've fallen. And the, the, the faces we see that are not his in the background of different soldiers, there's a couple of different soldier-esque type people in the back that, that are definitely vets, but there's one that really jumped out at me, which was the upper left-hand corner. There's a helmet with just these haunting pair of eyes sticking out from beneath it. And all you see is just the helmet itself and these eyes staring out, totally shell-shocked. It reminded me very much of some of the uh, images of like people shell-shocked that I've seen in war times, like videos and pictures of mm -hmm. shell-shocked vets or people in war scenarios. It's really haunting. So we turn the page and we open on the Three Soldiers Memorial. Mm -hmm. This incredibly lifelike statue of these three i want to say gi's but i don't want to get it wrong i completely understand but it is, it is obviously three gentlemen who fought in vietnam standing and looking over the memorial wall and in the next shot we are seeing them from behind and over their shoulders we can see a few people visiting the wall and one of them is billy spaceman baker john custer's old war buddy uh, now we've seen him once before mm -hmm. in texas and the spaceman mm -hmm. when we had the first our first look at John Custer's war days in Vietnam. And it also gave us the iconic fuck communism lighter from that scene, I believe. Yeah, that's right. And we met the trio of John Custer, Spaceman, and uh, Ghani. Ghani, that's correct. But Billy had run into Jesse in an airport as he was on his way to fight the Grail in France. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesse was. Billy was not doing that. <laughs> and told him the story. And now Jesse, it seems, has sought out Spaceman again. Yeah, and we see him now back in his full preacher regalia, which is the first in a while, I want to say, isn't it? Yeah, he's got new duds, actually. He's got the, the preacher's outfit, uh, black pants now. He's given up the, the white jeans, mm -hmm. collar, and gold lapel tips, plus his uh, new short hair that was given to him by Ms. Outlash. Holy shit, that was a thing. And his eye patch. Spaceman says he's looking more than ever like his father. Uh, god damn, you're looking more like him than ever. Except for the eye. Except for that. Still a preacher, huh? Ain't the kind of job you walk away from, I guess. Spaceman talks a bit about his kids and grandkids. They catch up. One of them is uh, trying to become a pro handball player, which he doesn't really approve of. But he says there are worse ways to spend one's teen years. <laughs> and we zoom out to see the length of the wall. Just these, this massive... I've never seen it in person, and the amount of names on there must be staggering to see. We learn that Jesse asked Spaceman to meet him here. Space says, it's no trouble for John Custer's boy. And anyway, he had never seen the memorial before. See who I found? Vincent A. Goring. Is that Ghani? How about that, huh? Crazy little fucker's immortal. Spaceman asks how Jesse lost the eye. 
preaching. <laughs> that is true, in a way. Jesse cuts to the chase, to the reason that he asked Spaceman here. He pulls out his father's Medal of Honor that his mother, who he recently discovered was not dead, yep. he met her in Salvation, had given him upon his, uh, his defeating Quincannon and leaving town. His mother, the art of his mother really, like, threw me off because she was called Jody at the time, and her hair was gray and slicked back, and she had very, like, angular features just like Jody yeah, did. Yeah, I, I love that, the way that when we first meet her and she doesn't have her memories, oh, she's man. unconsciously rebuilt herself into the image of Jody. And it's Because really... that's all she remembers is the man who destroyed her life. Yeah, it's really creepy to me. I was like, is this his sister? Is this someone else of Jody's? I'm like, this is terrible. And it winds up with his mom. And so he asks Spaceman to tell him the story. How did his father got the Medal of Honor? Mm. I was hoping you could tell me a little about it. Spaceman's reticent. You swear you'll do anything for some dude. The last goddamn thing you think it means is telling his boy the truth 30 fucking years later. Good line. And that's where we jump into flashback, back to Vietnam. Oh. And we are in the jungle, and it's not like a gentle cut. It is, they are running for their lives immediately. Like, they... Their position is being overrun by Viet Cong, and they are, I believe Spaceman's already taken a bullet through the leg. Yeah, John is sort of half-carrying Spaceman, who has got a bullet in the leg, and they look up to see two helicopters flying away, and the third exploded on the ground. Well, yeah. shit. <laughs> so John finds the leg, which he says is probably infected, but at least he doesn't have a scratch on him. Silver lining. Spaceman doesn't take that so well. <laughs> it's true. You are one eternal ray of hope, Texas. Any motherfucker ever tell you that? Now, John says they've got three or four days of rations and a map, so they're going to walk back to base. Actually, he says we don't have to walk all the way to base because there's a forward outpost less than 100 clicks away. How far a click is? A click a mile? Kilometer. Kilometer. So, he's an eternal ray of hope. Yeah, yeah. Really helpful. He says... That one? Yeah, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's so bad. You want me to or no? He says some rather insensitive things about the VC, which yeah. is maybe understandable given the circumstances. Yeah, it was pretty bad back in Vietnam. And, uh, but he says surrender is not for them. They're not going to be POWs. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get a very important line. We're down to 40 days in a wake-up. We're going home. Down to 40 days in a wake-up. What's that mean? Meaning these two guys have less than 40 days left over here. Ah. They are days away from mustering out, and he is intent that they are going to get back, get back to base, and then get out of this country. Gotcha. As they walk, John grumbles about the lack of strategy in the war. We ain't here to win no fucking war. We ain't here to beat no one. What do we do? We build a bunch of goddamn fire bases out in the bush, and the Hueys fly us in and out, and once we get a couple KIA confirmed, we go back and lie on our asses till it's time to do it again. That ain't how you win. You're supposed to take and hold territory, and then take some more. And police action, my ass. Nobody's telling me we're protecting shit out here. Half the villas we walk into, we burn to the fucking ground. So, I felt like I had to look into this a little bit. Okay. Because, because John, in the position of a common soldier, doesn't necessarily have a, a perfect grasp of the war. Garth Ennis obviously has the advantage of hindsight. Mm-hmm. So, this is a somewhat accurate summation of the U.S. strategy. Because the war was deemed a defensive police action, U.S. forces didn't take and hold territory. Mm-hmm. I believe the territory that they were fighting over was all considered to belong to South Vietnam anyway. Mm-hmm. And according to an interview with Robert McNamara, who was the defense secretary at the time, they intended to beat the VC in a war of attrition, with the enemy body count as the main measure of success. Interesting. So the... they're, they're out on search and destroy missions. They're not trying to hold territory just to, to fight and cause damage. Force. Yeah, just to do damage and then come back. The thing that I'm finding really interesting here is the parallel that's suddenly being drawn that I'm, or that I'm drawing between Jesse's dad, the things he's doing, going into villages and burning them to the ground and just causing damage, to the German gentleman who was in salvation that Jesse gave a rope to for him to hang. Oh my god, Gunther. Yeah. From the police battalions. Yeah. I mean, even, uh, even Jesse's dad, what's he say? He says, even these police action my ass, right? It sounds very similar to me. And it makes me wonder, like, would Jesse have thought the same of his father if he knew some of the stuff or the horrible things maybe his father had done in the war? And yeah. would he have given the rope to Gunther if he had known what his dad had done? It's really interesting to me. Like, I'm not sure how Jesse would view that. Like, what, what he would think about it. Yeah. Spaceman sort of alluded to that when he says that it's, you know, it's hard telling Jesse the truth. 
It's hard for his son to know these things about him. Mm -hmm. As they're resting, John talks about America. And this is a really sort of essential character building moment for him. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sum up a little bit because he's got a whole page here. Yeah, it's a lot. America means you work hard, you have a good life, and the freedom to enjoy it. Fighting for his country was worth it to him. But this, being fed into this goddamn meat grinder, any fool can see this don't do America no good at all. He says he'd like to think that it's like this in Nam, that Nam is like a dream, but it's the way it's supposed to be back home. Nightmare's over, I say to myself. Except it's just beginning, and there ain't no waking up from it, because it was our country that sent us here. It's really, really kind of poignant and sad, honestly. Because he's hoping it's a better life, hoping it's a better world back home, but in truth, it's home that sent him here, right? Yeah, and it's another parallel to Gunther, to his... You know, his abiding love of the concept of America, which he acknowledges in his first or his first or second conversation with Jesse. Several. <laughs> it doesn't hold up, mm -hmm. but it's worth fighting for. It's worth believing in anyway. Mm -hmm. And this is, to John Custer, this is an enormous betrayal by one of the things, perhaps the thing he believes in the most. Mm -hmm. And did Gunther go into how much he loved his country at all? Or was that all part of the story that he made up? He didn't really go into love much. his country. He, well, he, he mentions that he got into the Luftwaffe... Because his brother was in it. So he was really following in his footsteps. But that was all just But that story. was also bullshit. Yeah, that was bullshit. So I, he doesn't really mention whether or not he had pride in his country or not. And right. that he abandoned it because of its morals, what have you. But it's... He also discussed the pressure of living under a fascist society. That's true. And so we don't know to what extent his abandoning Nazi Germany was based on any ethical judgment of what they were doing or based on simple self-preservation. This is true. This is very true. I love this next conversation that's had here. Back in the present, Spaceman recalls John's feeling of being betrayed by America. And he remembers thinking, Shit, so that's what it's like to be the white boy. And his next line is he looks over the, uh, is it Washington State Monument? Washington Monument, Washington yes. Monument. He can see the Washington Monument in the distance. He follows up that line with, Any N-word you ask can tell you that's how America works. <laughs> it's, so he's seeing John have this revelation that he feels like any black man in America already knows this, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you are realizing what everyone who is a minority in this country already knows from the day they're born. Back in the flashback, John goes on, I'm going to rotate home from the land of bad things and find me a sweet little gal with brown eyes, and we're going to fuck like jackrabbits for the rest of our natural <laughs> lives. I'm going to raise a whole lot of kids, starting with a boy, I reckon. And any time I have to, I'll fight for them. Give him hell, right? He's trying to find something else of uh, value in his life. It's... Something else to build his life around, something else to care about. And of course we know how utterly fucked that's going to be. Yep. Because when he goes and has a son, uh, he'll be murdered and his son taken away by psychotic Texas folk. You know, patriots. <laughs> Heavy inward drawn breath through teeth. That's where Space realizes Texas isn't giving up. He's determined to drag his ass home, and he tells himself to shut up. <laughs> I love this, this next scene, too. It's very, very... <laughs> well, this is visually striking, too. Uh -huh. as they have mentioned that the area that they have to walk through is not all jungles. So now we find them over this vast golden savanna. Beautiful. S uh, sun setting behind them. Sweat running down their faces. So it's, it's just gold and orange above and below. It's beautiful. And they're they're sitting now after uh, some distance walk beneath uh, some kind of tree in the shade of some tree, as it looks like Jesse's looking at the map and Spaceman's holding his pistol. Spaceman tells John to go on without him. He can't walk. He's dead anyway. Bullshit. Fuck you. Spaceman says, and he points his pistol at his own head. What the fuck are you doing? What the fuck are you doing? Because <laughs> John is now pointing his machine gun at Spaceman's head as well. <laughs> All right, he's pointing his rifle at Spaceman. You out of your fucking mind? You gonna kill me to stop me from shooting myself? Put it the fuck down. <laughs> fuck you. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they lose their tempers with each other and... Uh, Some terse words in their are anger, <laughs> In their anger, they resort to... Some rather harsh invective. Some rather harsh racial invective for each other. Yeah, they let it all out. They don't, they don't hold any bars. And the second they have all these hateful things out of them, it's just a silent scene or a silent panel of them looking each other in the eyes. Yeah, and, and John falls to his knees, turns away. They're both sort of exhausted, defeated by that, uh, by that clash. John says, you wanna? 
Going to pull that trigger. Because things are really as shitty as this, I'm going to be right behind you. It's a long pause. Mm -hmm. And we see Spaceman, pistol no longer in hand, using a a stick or a plank of some kind to uh, hoist himself up. They ain't. And we see the next panel of him offering, standing up, offering a hand to, to John to get him up on his feet. Yeah, and we can clearly see the bloody bandaged wound in his leg, despite mm-hmm. the pain of his injury. His determination to survive has been rekindled, and he's now offering a hand to John, pulling him back from the brink of despair. Your daddy that stood between me and the Reaper. And the next corner little panel is them heading off into the sunset or sunrise, I'm thinking sunset, continuing on their way. Before... Okay, so they, they can now see the forward outpost. Mm-hmm. But... They don't have any flares. They don't have any way to signal except firing their weapons, and that will be taken as VC sniper fire. And they also are certain that there is nothing but VC forces between them and the base. They are certain that this base and this outpost is, there is nothing but Viet Cong between them and the outpost where they have to go. Yeah, lovely use of perspective here. We can see the outpost. It's one or two hundred yards of open ground away, Mm -hmm. and that's an eternity for them. Yeah, it might as well be across the Atlantic. They'll have to walk, because they can't signal. Mm-hmm. But to get across the open, they're going to have to go after dark. Yep. But space can't walk anymore. And they only have X amount of time in the night before... I mean, someone will find them, basically, if they're worried about. Right. Space makes the point that, sure, they don't smell us coming. He sure is fucking going to see us when the sun comes up, and we only gone 20 fucking yards. <laughs> Very true. So, on the next page... Night has fallen, and John is carrying Spaceman on his back. We just see silhouettes of them disappearing into more silhouetted dark jungle forest, or grasses, as they're exiting into pitch black. Only motherfucking way to travel. (laughs) On his back. Now we see the base captain watching the perimeter. And we're going to hear this guy's name. Oh, Captain Holden. Yeah, this is Holden. We met him years later when he was Colonel Holden during War in the Sun. Oh my god. He's the commander of the army unit in Monument Valley, the guy who hates Star and does his best not to do what Star tells him to do. Well, I didn't know that. That's who crazy. His, who loses his patience with Star's bullshit and, and tried to kill him. And beat the shit out of him, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And as they are making their way across this open ground, John, <laughs> John suddenly screams because he has stepped on another person. And it's, it's just a series of short, vertical, black panels showing time going by in the dark. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> shh! You shh, goddammit! So, hearing John scream, Holden orders a star shell, and with the no man's land lit up, we can now see <laughs> that John and Spaceman have walked right through a group of 20 Vietnamese combatants, all crawling towards the outpost. They are standing in a circle of Viet Cong, basically. I don't know what exactly Viet Cong means, and the fact that these guys don't have any kind of uniform, that they're all dressed in civilian clothing. I don't know if they're... Forces or... If they're official... Forces or not. Forces, or if they're just population resisting. True. That's very true. And this part I'll never believe till my dying fucking day, but it's how you win the Medal of Honor. (laughs) (laughs) And then this next... Oh, this next panel, it's it's all some beautiful art of just cannon fire and gunfire. Yeah, the Americans start shooting into the crowd of VC. With space on his back, John runs full bore into the gunfire, both screaming their heads off that they're Americans. <laughs> and both get hit. Mm-hmm. Before blacking out, space sees John unconscious on the ground with a bullet grazing his head. Mm-hmm. Holden finally realizes that they're Marines. Who else would be dumb enough to try walking through a goddamn minefield? <laughs> so not, on, not only were they surrounded by... Vietnamese, they were running through a minefield at night. <laughs> yeah, um, I took this as an inter-service rivalry. I don't know who has the tank unit, mm-hmm. but Holden's obviously not a fan of the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. That's fun. He orders them rescued, and we learn that, that Holden, the tank captain, was the one who wrote up John's citation for the Medal of Honor. Oh. On a stretcher, shot full of morphine, Spaceman remembers someone saying his name. And he looks over, it's Texas, and he's alive. This ain't our time to die. Then I passed out, never saw him again. Spaceman got to keep the leg. By the time he was out of hospital, John was on his way home. But John saw it, Spaceman says, the truth in six little words. We made it. We didn't end up on no wall. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Space says John would be proud to see Jesse with his Medal of Honor, but Jesse says he hasn't earned it yet. This ain't no trinket. You buy this with your blood and your pain, and I ain't done that. So how about we leave it here with all these other boys? He sets the medal on the brick path next to the memorial wall. Oh, man, that bothers me in the way, because, like, you know that's not going to stay there. <laughs> like, you know the next person who comes along is like, oh, cool, trinket, and they just pick it up, because that's what my dumbass would do, is the thing. Who steals a Medal of Honor? I wouldn't know it's a Medal a of Honor. I wouldn't know, one, okay, one, I wouldn't know it's a Medal of Honor. I pick up shiny things all the time. <laughs> If it's a needle, I'm picking it up. If it's shiny, I don't care. I pick up shiny things all the time. That's my whole life up to this point. This is my guest on Vertigo's this week. <laughs> a squirrel. It's, it's a crow, thank you. Building my Apologies. nest. Yeah. Oh, my God. But no, I'm just like, oh, man. I would love to have some kind of thing you could just put that in to keep it there. Yeah, it's a meaningful symbolic gesture. It's obviously not a pragmatic gesture if you ever hope to see that medal again. You know, Christina gave him the medal at the end of salvation, mm-hmm. feeling that, like, by defeating Quincannon, he had earned his stripes, so to speak. And he obviously feels that he hasn't because he's... because he hasn't accomplished what he set out to do in confronting God because he spent six or nine months hiding out in salvation, afraid to face Tulip and Cassidy again. Mm-hmm. And also, he really does have... If there is a, a medal of honor from his father, it's really the, the cigarette lighter that he's been carrying this whole time, I think. I think that has even more meaning to him in a way. Because he's been carrying that his whole life, right? Well, he talks here about how he stacks up to John Custer. Yeah. He thanks Spaceman for the story, and he says he's got a job to do, but he couldn't do it without knowing how John Custer won the Medal of Honor. Helps to know the kind of man you got to measure up to. It gives you hope. He turns to Spaceman. You gonna stay a while? Yeah, I, I kind of like it here. I like how they got the grunts' names up. All of them. Instead of just the dates of the war or some shit. And I like how it's quiet here. And now we get a view of the three soldiers as he goes on. And I especially like how they got them three dudes in the trees over there. Like they're coming out of the boonies after some patrol. And they only just seen all of this. And they're like, motherfucker. Someone remembered. Jesse apparently leaves as we find Spaceman. Alone at the wall again. He walks back up to... The name of Vincent R. Goring, Ghani. So tell me something. How come you shitheads never write? And that's the end. Oh, man. What do you think he means by that last line? Obviously, he doesn't expect his friends who died in Vietnam to write. (laughs) This is true. Yes, he said, he never saw either of them again after the war. Ghani was killed by a grenade, and John... They might have met again had John not fallen afoul of the Langell family. Mm Mm-hmm. I think what he means is that he forged some of the most powerful, meaningful friendships of his life over there. Mm-hmm. That they meant an enormous amount to him. More than I think he actually says in the last flashback how the friendships that you make in a war are stronger than the ones you can make in peacetime. Oh, absolutely. Um, but he also lost the people that they were with. The war also cost him those people. Yeah. It's it's a really sad, tragic thing. And, and tragedy, suffering tragedy together with anyone will bind you together like cement. It's crazy. Even, even those who have not been to war, if you've suffered traumatically something with someone else and been by them through it, you'll, you'll be all that much closer together than you'll ever imagine, honestly. So it's, I completely agree with your assessment of what he's saying. I really do. It's good stuff. Really sad stuff, but good stuff. Yeah, it's interesting to see Ennis go back to the Vietnam milieu Hmm. after having done one flashback issue and establishing a little bit of of how texas and spaceman and ghani lived during the war and this is perhaps a more conventional vietnam story Mm -hmm. more conventional heroics Mm -hmm. the last time was a little crazier yeah yeah but we had the the very powerful tragic moment of ghani's death Mm -hmm. and then but we followed that up with the boys uh locking their commanding officer in a latrine and throwing him down the hill that was fun Good times. The more I read of Preacher, the more I... I think I talked about this last time I was on the show. I always try and figure out what is the... Whenever I read a story or I watch a TV show or a play or anything like that, I always try and figure out what is the one-sentence descriptor <laughs> that what is, the, what is this about, right? Like, okay. what, is the, what is the author trying to tell us, right? And the more I read of Preacher, the more I think it has to do with the soul of America. Uh, what America means to different people what America is and is not, 
We're going to get a lot of that in the even Hit Girls Get the Blues arc in the next arc. Yeah. The more I read of it, the more I think that this is either... I'm not sure if it's an epitaph or a... Yeah. That's pretty brutal. It is. It, it, I mean, I don't know how... If this book was written with our current administration, I don't know how much darker it would be. <laughs> because I think it would be, honestly. I think it would be a lot darker. But I definitely feel like it is either an ode and a praising and remembering of some of the... Because even the Old West, right? You think of like the Old Wild West characters. That is America, right? That, that the, the Old Wild West, the cowboys. That is indicatively American, right? Yeah, and yeah. To use those as kind of the pinnacles of either good or bad or as just strong points. I feel like with one more book, I might be able to give my one sentence, this is what this series is about. That's an interesting, an interesting contrast, right, between The Saint, the ruthless sociopathic gunslinger, mm-hmm. and The Duke, the iconic image of heroic figure of the Old West, mm-hmm. as kind of opposite poles, kind of opposing viewpoints. And also, if you think about it, right, they're also on polar opposites in the fact of, in-universe, the Duke is not real. He is a fantastical, fictional dream character and represents the good, while as the reality of what these gunslingers were like, more, more like, is the Saint of Killers. Yeah, but the Duke doesn't, the Duke isn't irrelevant because he's not real. He is something for Jesse to aspire to. Exactly. I, I want to say something here. There is a through line to both of the Vietnam stories in that, even though this is a more conventional form of heroism, we do see that in both cases, John Custer's heroism does not come out of following orders or dedication to his country or what he's being asked to do. Mm-hmm. It is his devotion to the people he's with over there. Mm-hmm. It is more committing to people than versus committing to an ideal or committing to a, a government or a, a place or an idea, but the people themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the idea of America has betrayed him, we see in this story. But mm-hmm. his bond with Spaceman is something meaningful that, that carries him through this ordeal. And the bond with this future wife that he will fuck with rabbits like, and the child that they will have. <laughs> that bond that he, is, he wants to have, very much so. Yeah. I read somewhere, talking about, I think, Russell Davies, who wrote a lot of Doctor Who. Okay. Uh, the idea that... Atheists write the best religious fiction. <laughs> Garth Ennis reminds me of that assessment because he is Irish. He's not American. But the sort of soul of America, the concept of America, seems to really appeal to him. And he's gone to great lengths to dig into what it stands for and what it means. What the ideal is that the world may not live up to and whether it's a worthy ideal anyway. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is very much posing the question but not necessarily giving us the answer, which is something I like. And I think like... Like Gunther, in a way, even though it's not his country, America appeals to Garthanus massively. Hey guys, I got this one wrong, and I'm sorry. Garthanus is a naturalized American. I wasn't intending to demean his Americanness, only to suggest that he comes to the myth of America from an outsider's perspective. Again, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of every masculine character almost has at least some type of wild west feel to them or, or or overly american feel to them in a way it seems whether it be a cowboy hat here or a bottle of jack daniels there everything <laughs> everything is just the most masculine it can be for the most part which is a lot of fun do you think perhaps that ennis has used this story to build up john custer a little bit more to establish him as something that jesse hasn't quite lived up to yet hmm because maybe before we knew about the Medal of Honor, he was sort of Just starting to feel like something Jesse had already surpassed. Maybe, yeah, because we haven't had much involvement with that in a while, have we? We haven't had much involvement about Jesse's father since, like, Angelville, right? That was the last time we really, like, went into depth on him. Yeah, I mean, during Masada, we saw his the first look at him in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe it's a, as far as a writing tactic, maybe it's a reminder to key our, our readers into hey, this person still means a great deal and is still at the forefront of Jesse's mind and still dominates the majority of what he thinks about life and, and the way he sees the world. Yeah, and as we see in this issue and as we see in the, in the rest of the series, Jesse has got an idea what he needs to do and he is methodically moving through the things that he needs to learn and the people that he needs to deal with. And we will see that continue into the next arc. So in our next Preacher episode, join us in three weeks for even hit girls get the blues. But first, join us next week for Sandman, as Lyda Hall embarks on a quest for revenge, and we learn the things they don't teach you at school.
Take care. Have fun. Thank you so much for doing the show. Happy to be here. Word of Guys is written and hosted by me and Eric this week by me and Andy. I produce the show and Eric handles social media. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, why don't you check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter at BlankCastSean. You can find Eric at Vertiguys. We'd love to hear your questions or suggestions for things you'd like to hear on the podcast. You can reach us at vertiguys at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you are enjoying the show, we would certainly appreciate it if you could leave a positive rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use. That would help other people to find the show. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Have a good time. Is there anything you want to pimp on the show? <laughs> Not in anything. No. Come see me at the Hoboken, New Jersey Laugh Hole. No, um... <laughs> No, I got nothing. Um, <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs>